Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with John Perkins. Hey, John. Hey, Aaron. Great to be with you. Nice to be with you, too. John Perkins is an author and activist whose 10 books on global intrigue, shamanism, and transformation, including the forthcoming Touching the Jaguar, Shapeshifting, and the classic Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 70 weeks and sold over 2 million copies, published in 35 languages. As chief economist at a major consulting firm, John advised the World Bank, United Nations, Fortune 500 corporations, the United States, and other governments. He regularly speaks at universities, economic forums, and shamanic gatherings around the world, and is a founder and board member of the nonprofit organizations, the Pachamama Alliance and Dream Change. So, John, I am so thrilled that we have the opportunity to visit with you today. And uh, as I was mentioning before we started recording, just after finishing graduate school, I read your book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and it's one of my favorites. It's, it's a remarkable uh, reveal and truth-telling. And I have, to, I have to note that in your bio here, to say that you um, regularly speak at universities, economic forums, and shamanic gatherings, I, I imagine those, that's a combination that... Uh, not too many people uh, can uh, include in their bios. So uh, glad we could visit with you today. And uh, thanks for being with us here. Thank you, Aaron. It's, it's my pleasure being here. And yeah, you know, I've, so I've written what, five books on, on shamanism and indigenous people, shape-shifting the world is as you dream at those, and four on global economics and intrigue, including uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, Hoodwinked, uh, Secret History of the American Empire. And, you know, when I speak at economic forums, somebody might come up to me afterwards or even raise their hand and say, hey, I can't believe, are you really the same guy that wrote those shaman books? And when I speak at, at you know, sort of new age events and about shamanism, people say, hey, are you the same? You can't be the same guy that wrote that Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And I've always understood that there was a, there's a very strong connection between the two. It, it, you know, if we can get into that more. But so Touching the Jaguar was written specifically to make that connection, to show that, that you know, basically, if we want to change the world, if we want to move out of what I call a death economy, this economic system that I helped to create as an economic hitman, into a better system, what we call a life economy, uh, the, the approaches that shamanism uses about changing perception to change reality are extremely applicable. So I decided, you know, I needed to be overt about that and, and, and write the book, Touching the Jaguar, <laughs> which, Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life in the World, which is, is really about bridging that, what seemed like a gap to many people between those two, uh, those two types of books. Absolutely. Yeah, disparate, you know, at the least, if not, you know, entirely different universes, really. I, I've been enjoying um, my advanced copy of uh, Touching the Jaguar, and it's such a rich read, and it really chronicles, uh, in large part, your own personal journey and in, in history, as well as the stories behind the creations of these uh, two really important organizations, Pachamama Alliance and Dream Change. And uh, the title, Touching the Jaguar, obviously refers to something very important in, in those experiences. And I'm curious, can you just give us a bit of a glimpse into what meeting and touching the Jaguar means? Yeah, of course. Uh, so, so to the indigenous people in the Amazon, uh, where I spent a lot of time t touching the Jaguar, like this guy down here, I wear one so I can touch it all the time. <laughs> it, it, it means uh, touching our fears, confronting our fears. And, and so they say that, you know, if you run from your fears or the obstacles standing in your way of doing whatever you want to do, uh, these obstacles, these fears will, will follow you. On the other hand, if you touch them, uh, they will give you power, wisdom, energy, courage to move forward into where you want to go. And I'll give you an example. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer living deep in the Amazon with hunters and gatherers, the Shuar people, back in the late 60s, 
uh, I became deathly ill. I was dying. And I was a very, very, very long way from the nearest medical facility. There was no way I, I, I could get there. I couldn't even really stand up. And, and, that, and, and one night, a, a shaman healed me. And basically what, what he did, he took me on a shamanic journey. And while I'm on this journey, uh, I'm seeing how, you know, I, I grew up uh, from about 300 years of Yankee Calvinists in New England. And we were very hygienic, washed our hands a lot, and we ate very mild foods, basically meat and potatoes in those days. Um, and now I'm living with people in the Amazon who've never seen a bar of soap. And they eat some very strange foods, including a, a kind of a bee called chicha, which is made by women chewing manioc root and spitting it, and it, it ferments and turns into a kind of beer, and then they mix water with it and they can drink it. They know they can't drink the river water because the rivers have too much organic matter in them. I mean, there's no industrial pollution, but there's animals, there's dead leaves, there's things like that. So I'm now living with these people and I'm eating a lot of strange foods because there's, there weren't any cliff bars. <laughs> and I'm drinking a lot of the spit beer because there wasn't any Perrier, you know? <laughs> uh, and on the shamanic journey, uh, at, at one point, the shaman says to me, touch the jaguar. I was terrified. I'm like, Where is, is there a jaguar coming in? And then, <laughs> and then I, I see this jaguar. It's a vision quest journey. I see this jaguar. And what, in the jaguar, basically, I hear this voice that says, it shows me these foods and, and, and that I've been eating and the spit beer. I see that too. And the, and the voice comes to me and it says, it'll kill you, son. And the food, the drink will kill you, son. This voice is speaking to me like my mother's voice. At the same time, I also saw how healthy the, sh the schwa are. And the men are all built like Tarzan. You know? <laughs> and uh, the women, while well, I was in my early 20s, the women were looking very interesting. Uh, people live to be very old if they're not killed in a hunting accident or beaten by a poisonous snake or something. And so on that shamanic journey, when I touched that jaguar, it came out and it basically said to me, this is healthy food and drink. It's making these people healthy. And you know, my, I came to see later, it's what we today call local and organic. Very, very healthy food. The spit beer is, is very high in, in, in many different things uh, that, that it gives you nutrition. Um, and after that, I was healthy. After that night, that morning when I woke up, I, I felt much better. And I realized that it wasn't the food and drink that had been killing me. It was my mindset, my perception. And then the shaman asked me, really kind of demanded of me that in payment for this, I become his apprentice. This is 1969, Aaron. I, I'd graduated from business school. I'd never even heard of a shaman until I got there. And I had no interest in becoming a shaman. I mean, there, was, there was no future in those days. There is now, but, but he saved my life. So I became his apprentice. And, and, and then later, when I went back and did what I'd been trained to do in business school, I became an economist, a chief economist, and did what we call the work of an economic hitman. Um, I, I would take time off whenever I could in places like Indonesia and Iran and Egypt and all over Latin America and study with shamans. And what I learned is that throughout the world, uh, shamanism is based on this idea, this concept, this belief, this truth, that our reality is molded by our perceptions. And then I began to understand that that's modern psychotherapy. Uh, that's also quantum physics. And it's advertising, it's marketing. Mold, mold the reality through perceptions. When you think about it, there's no United States, there's no Ecuador, there's no Russia. There's no culture, there's no religion, there's no economy, there are no corporations, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it impacts reality. And that's a common shamanic belief, but it's also, <laughs> everybody believes in a way. And so, so the idea of, 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 of touching the jaguar is all about touching perceptions that are holding us back from being all that we can be, from being healthy, from, from doing what we most want to do in life. And when we touch that, the fear that goes into what change it might necessitate for us to be all that we want to be or do what we want to do, when we touch that, 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 that fear, that obstacle, that blockage, it, it empowers us to move forward and do what we really want to do. 
Yeah, you know, John, um, th this obviously is a central theme running through your book. And I, I want to mention to our audience that we're going to give you uh, links to pre-order the book, which will also unlock for you a uh, free live webinar with John on April 29th. So we'll be sure to get you that information uh, here as well. But in, in, in the, what's that, John? I was just coughing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were about to but, say but that's something. okay because you're at least six feet away. Yes, uh, at least. Yeah, you're on Bainbridge Island and I'm in Boulder, Colorado. So yeah. we're uh, thou uh, hundreds of miles apart at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the uh, beginning of the book here, there's one passage that I, I wanted to quote you, if I may, um, because it, it, for me, really... Uh, underscores and uh, exemplifies what you're sharing with us in, in this book and in your work. And it, it says this, it says, as a former economic hitman who contributed to the expansion of the death economy, and as one who has lived with the people of the Amazon and apprenticed with shamans, I've come to understand my obligation to change my own perceptions and to do everything I can to help transform dysfunctional systems into ones that will serve us all life on this planet. This, I think, John, is, is an invitation that in a variety of ways, millions of different ways, each one of us on this planet right now uh, can respond to. And in varying ways, we're each affected by a variety of strange perceptions, we might call them, and, and it seems in these times we're, we're being asked, we're being invited, we're being led uh, to really look through that and to see the reality for what it is on this amazing living planet that we share together. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Aaron. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that at the time I wrote uh, Touching the Jaguar, I had no idea, of course, that there was going to be a coronavirus. And, but I, what I did know is that we'd been hit by many once in 100 year events every year or so, the hurricanes, the fires, the earthquakes, the tornadoes, uh, that, it, that the planet is speaking to us, telling us that we, we must change. And uh, so, it, 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 and, and in fact, this book totally addresses that. I, it's almost as though the Jaguar was reaching out and touching me and uh, getting me to, <laughs> Write a book that's, that's I think it's it's actually perfect for this time these times and why I'm offering this workshop on April 29th is because the book doesn't Officially you won't receive the book if you pre-order it until mid-June uh, But it's got this whole part section in it about what each of us can do on a daily basis A practice that we can have for less than 10 minutes a day or, or every two days or once a week or whatever we want to do it and I felt that it's really important to get that message out there now, not to wait till the book comes out. So people will, will be going through that and people who sign up will also receive a, another little booklet for free that uh, summarizes all of that before they'll get the actual, uh, so they'll get that digitally by, by email before they actually get the book they, <laughs> they've ordered, which will have a lot more in it than just that. But we are at this incredible time of, of crisis and, and huge opportunities to recognize that we, we must change, that we've reached a time in history where we, we must convert what I call, and other economists are calling a death economy, an economic, it's actually a governmental social economic system that is failing us. It's consuming itself into extinction that's destroying the planet as we know it. We must convert that into a life economy that's a regenerative, rejuvenating, uh, pollution cleaning up, uh, recycling uh, economy that we can all move into and be employed in. It's, it's, it's not about going back to live in caves. It's about creating a new economic system. And I think, you know, the, the hurricanes, the once in 100 year events were localized and people could kind of ignore them unless you're going through it. But if you went through it, one of these hurricanes or other events and you live through it, you expected that the outside world was going to come and help you within a matter of days, maybe a couple of weeks. Bottled water would arrive, food would arrive, and then some leader would tell you, well, we're going to rebuild and we're going to be better than ever, but we're going to, re we're going to go back to the normal, but even better. And, but in, in, in some, it didn't force us to think globally. 
this virus now because we really didn't listen to those things on a on, on a macro level. This virus now, I think, has forced us to do that. It's everybody, every human being on this planet is impacted by this by the coronavirus, and there is no outside world. Nobody's going to come to save us. We're understanding that you know we we better change. That we we don't really want to go back to normal because normal wasn't really working we we want to create a new normal a healthy normal one that'll be very very comfortable to live in and uh and a lot more satisfactory in the long run yeah i love that uh the one of the themes or taglines for pachamama alliances is cultivating lives marked by environmental sustainability social justice and uh, spiritually meaningful uh, existences. And it seems that COVID in many respects is causing us to slow down. Many of us are, are planting gardens who hadn't in a long, long time and reconnecting with some of the fundamentals of uh, living on this planet. Yes. Yeah. Well, the Pachamama Alliance is very much based on that same process that like about 25 years ago when we founded it, uh, Bill and Lynn Twist and I were the co-founders, and we had, again, of course, we had no idea there was going to be a virus like this on the way. And over the, the 25 or so years since then, as the organization has evolved and worked to learn from indigenous people and then to spread that word through, I think we're 87, some odd, about 87 countries now with our dream-changing dream programs, dream-changing, perception-changing. Um, you know, we've, it almost as though we've been moving toward this moment. Uh, again, like the book, I think that organization is, is very much uh, a part of how we can understand the way to move forward uh, with the virus, beyond the virus, and, and look at the virus not as an enemy, but as an ally. And mm. something pushing us forward. And you know, whether you look at this from the shamanic perspective, or perhaps the some people would call the woo-woo perception of perspective of, oh, Mother Earth is speaking to us of this, or which I think is a totally valid. But if you don't buy into that and you just look at it completely from the scientific standpoint, it's pretty hard now for anyone to deny the impact that human activities are having on this planet. When you look at those satellite photographs from China, where pollution is cleaned up as a result of the reduced activity, or you, the people in Los Angeles are seeing blue skies from places where they never, and stars where they never saw them before. And there's so much happening that's very, very clearly telling us, not from a woo-woo standpoint, but from a, from a totally scientific standpoint, that we've got to change if we want to continue to survive on this planet. So you can look at this virus from many different, there's a whole spectrum there. And all along that spectrum, though, there's, there's just no questioning that we, we are getting a very strong message, whether it's the shamanic message or, or scientific message or some combination of the two. Whatever your, your bias is, the message is there for you. Yeah, it's it's so potent. You know, I want to I want to dig into this life economy vision that you're you're sharing, and you know, with the Why on Earth uh, community and the framework we work with, the the one of the ways we think about this in terms of economics is is transcending the traditional uh, model of extractive linear economics and, and value chain, primary, secondary, tertiary, uh, quaternary and introducing the quintenary, which closes the loop and takes it from linear to uh, cyclical. And in the quintenary lives the sense of responsibility, stewardship, regeneration that infuses all the other steps in those activities as, as a way to invite people into how this might look different. And, and I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing and speaking and communicating on this, what if, if you were to summarize, distill, and, and pull out the essence of what uh, it will look like as we create a life economy? What are what are some of the key themes that you think it's really important that re regular folks become aware of? Well, you know, it's, it can go in many different directions. But here's an example. Imagine if 
if your tax dollars and my tax dollars went to instead of paying for heavy military equipment, we might pay the same companies, Raytheon, General Dynamics, or some brilliant engineers and scientists who would probably much prefer to be making systems that, that mine all the plastic in the oceans, for example, clean up old mine pits and, and, and oil spills. Uh, and there's so much that we can do. We can pay people to uh, clean up pollution all over this planet. I mean, even walking around the streets, picking up you know, pieces of glass and plastic and so forth. And to regenerate destroyed environments, to, to, to uh, come up with whole new technologies, recycling. Wind and solar made huge headway in the last few years but we're still dealing with primitive technologies. I think from 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, hey, man, that stuff was pretty primitive. I hope that's the case. You know, we, we, so we create new technologies that use wind and solar and the air. I mean, there's, there's so much that's just waiting to happen out there. If we just put our investments into hiring people to do those kinds of things, instead of hiring them to make military equipment and, and to make a lot of, let's face it, junk, a lot of consumer products that, that nobody really, really needs. Uh, and it really doesn't make people happy, except you know, people may get an adrenaline rush because of, you know, this, this, is, this is the shopper's addiction. <laughs> you go to the store and, and you buy something, it makes you really happy. And then the next day you've, you've lost that uh, adrenaline rush or whatever rush it is. And, and you gotta go out and buy something else. And I know, I mean, we all know people, like, I've been that way sometimes. Uh, so, so we move into a, a new type of uh, lifestyle, a new kind of economy. It doesn't mean going back to live in caves. It means that we, we redirect our goals. And, you know, the, the, the death economy is driven by a single goal for business, and that is to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And that's a, an idea that had been growing for some time, but it really took off in 1976 when uh, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in Economics and became very famous for, for, for prom promoting that very thing, uh, maximize short-term profits, regardless of the environmental and social costs. Uh, and that's a perception. As we said, perception molds reality. That perception has created a reality that's, that's destructive. It's unsustainable. It's actually, if you want to think about it, it's, it's actually an insane idea. Maximize short-term profits for very few people, really. And that's a new idea in history. It wasn't new in 1976. He, he, he got it out there. It had been growing. But if you look at the 250,000 years or so that we humans have been on this planet as we know ourselves, it's only been within a blink of a life, a blink of history, that we have had this idea that we need to maximize short-term benefits, short-term profits, or for individuals, short-term accumulation of, you know, that, that thing, the guy who dies with the most always wins. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> wow, where did that come from? <laughs> we have that mentality, and, and that's a new mentality. And incidentally, the people in the Amazon I lived with back when I was a Peace Corps volunteer and, and most indigenous people, never had that mentality. And we, we all come from a heritage that doesn't have that mentality. We come from a heritage that says, let's maximize long-term benefits for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And to return to that kind of goal to say that business isn't there to maximize short-term profits, business is there to maximize long-term benefits. For, and let's pay investors a decent rate of return for creating a life economy. And let's all of us focus on how do we create long-term benefits for ourselves rather than just short-term materialistic uh, consumption. Absolutely. This is the kind of thing where we're seeing this incredible growth and acceleration with B corporations, with social enterprise uh, entities. It's, to me, very exciting to see that not only are the seeds planted, they're, they're sprouting, they're growing, and that we as consumers, we as parents, as grandparents, as professionals have a, a tremendous opportunity to help further accelerate that just through our uh, consumer choices alone. Yeah, consumer choices, our investment choices, and our, and, and our employees. And if we all focus on that. You, you know, I've got to say, I, I, I speak at a lot of economic conferences, and I, um, 
I, I can't tell you how many chief, chief executives, people in very high positions, have come up to me and said, I want to do better. I want my company to be greener. I have kids. I have grandchildren. But I'm afraid that if I, I may, I, if I do these things, I'll probably in the short run lose a little bit of market share or my stock prices will go down. And if that happens, my chief stockholders will probably fire me and replace me with someone who only cares about stock prices or market share. But they'll say, you go out there, and they'd say this to you, Aaron, they probably have. Uh, you go out there and tell your audiences, hey, send me emails, pick a company. I don't care whether it's Walmart or, 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 or Nike or whoever it is. Pick, pick a company that you're concerned about and, 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 and let your social networking circles join you in sending an email or text or twit, a tweet or whatever to them saying, hey, I love your products. But I'm not going to buy them anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair wage or clean up the pollution you've caused or, or use more sustainable materials. There's a lot of executives that really want to get those messages that they can take them to their main stockholders and their executive committees and their boards of directors and say, hey, these are our, these are our customers. We got to listen. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it is happening, like you said, you mentioned several things, B corporations, the, the Green New Deal, uh, the idea that last August at the business roundtable, 192 of the most powerful executives in the world said, this can no longer be about maximizing profits. We've got to take into account our consumers, our employees, and the communities where we work, exactly what goes into creating a life economy. Uh, so it, it, it was happening before this coronavirus, and I have a feeling that this coronavirus will tip us much further over that point. I, I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Let me uh, just take a moment to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we are talking with John Perkins, the author of the forthcoming Touching the Jaguar. Uh, as well as several other books, including the very well-known uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And want to make sure you know that uh, if you uh, pre-order uh, John's new book, Touching the Jaguar, uh, you can get a, a free invitation to a live webinar he's doing on April 29th. You'll also get a digital booklet with some additional goodies. This is all in advance of the actual book that you'll uh, receive in June. And to get all of this, you can go to touchingthejaguarbook.com or you can go right to John's uh, website, johnperkins.org. And uh, want to also mention that you can connect with John on Twitter at jperkinsauthor, on Facebook at johnperkinsauthor, and uh, we've been mentioning uh, Pachamama Alliance there at pachamama.org. Uh, and we'll talk a bit about Dream Change, also dreamchange.org. Um, now, I want to give a quick shout out to all of our individual supporters who make our podcast series possible. And uh, if you haven't yet joined our monthly giving program and you would like to, you can go to whyonearth.org support. Want to give also a shout out to our uh, corporate sponsors. This includes Earth Coast Productions, Patagonia, Purium, Earthwater Press, Waylay Waters, and uh, of course the Lidge Family Foundation. Uh, for those of you who might want to receive monthly shipments from Waylay Waters of those very special hemp-infused aromatherapy soaking salts, very good in the time of corona, uh, you can join the monthly giving program at whyonearth.org slash waylay-waters and, and get those uh, as well. Um, so this is, it's so exciting, John, that uh, your, your book's coming out soon and that you're doing this live webinar. And here we are, uh, coronavirus, communicating through digital technology. And I, I know you've got some thoughts about where that might be heading and, and how this period of, of COVID may be uh, indicating a bit of what our, our future might be looking like in terms of uh, digital communication technology. How do you, how do you see that uh, changing and uh, altering our life ways, if you will, going forward. Well, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I, and I just recently published a newsletter about that, which people can also get on my website, johnperkins.org. I think I outlined 12 
specific areas. But I think it's, it's fair to say that um, we have experienced something profound. Uh, major changes in society, in the eating habits, in fashion, in architecture, <laughs> in business and everything else like that happens when there are things like world wars, wars, world wars of any kind for that matter, locally, uh, depressions, recessions, and pandemics. And we're going through that and people are, are understanding now that we can communicate so well the way that you and I are communicating right now with a lot of other people out there. Uh, and we've been doing a lot of that. You know, I had a Pachamama Alliance board meeting just yesterday uh, where we had, we brought in about over 200 of our major donors also into part of that meeting. We'd never done anything like that before. We'd always traveled to San Francisco, which is where our headquarters are to meet. I, I live in the state of Washington and, you know, now I've learned I don't have to fly to go to these meetings and we've all learned that. And we've, you know, we've, we, we've learned that, um, so many things about being with ourselves and being at home and maybe eating at home. I, I've always enjoyed going to restaurants and I haven't been to any, obviously for a long time. I'm eating healthier. I'm, I'm you know, my, I'm losing weight. I, 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 I jog in forests. I've got forests nearby and I've always done that. And it's one of the ways I keep my weight down. But when you go out to restaurants all the time, it's much more difficult. Uh, we eat very healthy here. And, uh, so many things. I, I think what we'll see is a is a real movement in businesses from uh, big uh, physical complexes. You know, the universities are learning that they can work using work digitally. Why do they need all those buildings? Why, that costs a lot of money uh, to do that. A lot of our biggest corporations. I was talking today with with a person from a, from one of the big insurance companies, and they have a, a huge campus outside Chicago. They've learned that they don't really need that campus everybody's working at home right now and that's gone on and on and on and people have become accustomed to ordering things uh, by the internet and having them either delivered or you just go and pick them up somebody else does i don't know will that continue to a certain degree i think people are going to be leery of flying and, and taking uh, cruise ships because even if all that gets back in the system theoretically uh, there have been a lot of people that have been trapped in places where they really don't want to be for several months. I know a few of them. Uh, and that's a risk you take when you travel. So I, I think there's so many, many changes. I heard, I heard an expert yesterday on a program, uh, a fashion historian, uh, say that beards will probably go out or there'll be less, there'll be fewer beards on men because the, the masks don't work so well with beards. And women may, may not grow such long fingernails in the future because it's hard to put on those rubber gloves and, and, and other gloves. So, you know, those are, those are fairly minor things, but, it, but there's gonna be large changes in, in our economy. There's no question about it. The businesses that, that can be IT based, digitally based, they're doing what you're doing, uh, those will thrive. Uh, the ones that have been really dependent on uh, on resource on 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 you know people being at a specific location will probably go by the wayside or they'll or they'll adjust. We're seeing you know negative oil price. I mean, who yeah. ever heard of such <laughs> such a thing? Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing to think about that, yeah. and it's an interesting prospect. I work a lot spent a lot of time in Ecuador and Peru, and those are countries that are very dependent on oil. Ecuador particularly uh, has been destroying parts of its Amazon rainforest to, to get at oil. And um, so th this drop of oil prices is really protecting the, the rainforest. And it's also going to let Ecuador know that the major source of their income is is gone. I mean, their budgets are, are anticipate oil prices of, of better than sixty or seventy dollars a barrel. Yeah, we're not going to get that. So, what are the, what's going to happen to their budgets? Well, there's a lot of resources. The Amazon itself is a place that, that people can 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 love, even in film, online, and, and in pictures. They don't all have to travel there. And so, it's going to we're going to start valuing different things in different ways. I think that, I think we're going to go through major changes. I hope so. And I would also add, Aaron, that I think that the status quo, the people with a lot of money and power who want to keep things the way they are, they will put, a, they will try very, very hard uh, to have us go back to the old system. Including, I think there's a lot of 
a lot of information now suggesting that this virus is just a conspiracy, that, that, that somebody, the Chinese or some organization, you know, sent this virus out there as a conspiracy thing. To me, that's, uh, I don't know what's true, but, but what I do believe is that, as Naomi Klein wrote in her pivotal book, Chalk Doctrine, uh, when, when things like this occur, then there'll be people that'll try very hard to take advantage of it and convince us that we really don't need to change, that, this, that we've taken care of it, we've got a vaccine that's gonna take care of it, we've, we can do that and so on and so forth. And while we may have a vaccine that'll take care of it, we've gotta understand that we're polluting the planet. You know, we've created a system that just isn't viable in the long run. We must change. Absolutely. You know, you know, this emerging phenomenon of us getting more connected to our local environs, whether gardening or jogging more in, in the woods and doing more of our communicating and our work uh, mediated by digital technology uh, very much. Uh, seems to fulfill a vision that William Irwin Thompson had back in the 70s when he was at MIT, uh, which he wrote in this essay called The Meta-Industrial Village, which is like your book, uh, Confessions, one of the really impactful things that I read 15, 20 years ago. And uh, in it, he basically posits that we'll head in this direction where we return to a more localized physical way of procuring things like food and fiber and so forth. And in so doing, we'll re-engage with organic uh, ways of growing, regenerative ways of growing. And that will meanwhile uh, become a very robust, globally connected uh, society through these communication technologies. He wrote that back in, I think it was 1972. And, and here we are, it's, it's happening. It's like we're, we're living in, inside of his essay somehow. Right. And even cities, like I, I saw a model a few years back before all this was happening, but of uh, how a city like, let's say New York, it could be any city, um, and especially with gas prices, you know, going down, that, that could work in the opposite direction, but we're also learning uh, that, uh, it, that how are the oil companies going to react to this? We don't know, but I think what we're learning is we can't keep creating this pollution. So what if we, this, this model showed a city without any cars and where all the high roads had been converted into paths and gardens and all the parking garages had been converted into gardens. So you've got mirrors reflecting sunlight into all the different floors of the, of the, of these garages. So even the cities can become relatively self-sufficient in terms of growing food and so forth if we change these things. And, and to do that would accomplish two things. You'd get rid of the pollution that, that, burning oil in cars causes and all the congestion and all the problems and you'd also be able to create a very pleasant environment in, in our cities and with some some forms of public transportation uh, but people could do a lot walking and having their most of the stores they need in a neighborhood more neighborhoods I, I think that's a it was a, it's a it was a I remember being deeply impressed by that model a number of years ago and now it, it seems to be it's taken on new, new meaning and new, even new urgency. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we know that uh, more walking is, is going to have all kinds of health and, and mental and even immune system benefits. I love that vision. Yeah, me too. Well, speaking of, you know, visions of the future uh, coming to fruition, in the book, you, you talk about the prophecy of the eagle and condor. And uh, it seems this is increasingly bubbling up in different circles and probably speaks uh, to our times as, as much as any other specific prophecy or, or archetype or metaphor. And I'm, I'm wondering if you might share with us a bit about what this is, what the prophecy of the eagle and condor means uh, for our times. Sure. It, it's a, and I'll make it as short as I can. It's a prophecy that goes back thousands of years. We don't know how far back. It pr pr probably came out of the Amazon or the Andes. And it says, back a couple of thousand years ago, they were saying, back in the midst of history, human societies decided to take two flights, two routes. One would be the root of the condor, which would be the root of the heart. They said that's the root of the, that's, that's the flight of the birds of the heart, the condor uh, passion. Um, 
uh, intuition, creativity, might even say kind of the feminine part of ourselves. And the other flight would be the flight of the ego, which would be the flight of the mind, uh, rationality, industry, science, kind of the male path. And, and this prophecy said that for thousands of years, these two birds, these two paths, these two societies wouldn't come together. They, they'd go their separate ways. And then it was said that in the fourth, fourth Pachacuti, Pachacuti in the Quechua language of the Andes and of the Incas, uh, is, is, is a 500-year interval. The fourth Pachacuti began in our time about 1500. They said at that time in the fourth Pachacuti, the eagle and condor would come together and they would clash. And the eagle would be so powerful as to practically drive the condor into extinction, but not quite. And of course, we know that happened. Columbus, 1492, the industrialized worlds, uh, the technically advanced worlds practically drove the indigenous cultures into extinction. The prophecy goes on to say 500 years later in the fifth Pachacuti, roughly the year 2000, the opportunity would arise for the eagle and the condor to fly together, to soar in one sky, to dance, to mate, and to create a new offspring, higher consciousness. And we're seeing that happen, you know, beginning in the 1990s really is when people in the United States began to take an interest in shamanism. When my books on shamanism got written and it became quite popular and many others. And uh, at the same time, the, the people, the condor peoples, the Latin America, the shamans and the North America, all over, uh, began to open up more to sharing their knowledge with us. And of course, this is still continuing. And again, it gets stronger every year. So we see these two prophecies working, and we also see the male and the female uh, coming together legally and from many aspects. We've still got work to do in all these areas, there's no question, but uh, it's happening. And it's, it's again, very, very possible that this coronavirus will, will push us e even more in that direction. I want to ask you uh, a question. You've, you've clearly had some extraordinary experiences, experiences a lot of, of us in this audience, I imagine, haven't had ourselves necessarily. And uh, one of those is with what's called plant medicine, uh, the entheogens, the psychotropics. And I'm, I'm curious, do you think, John, for us to move in this direction of, of creating a beautiful future, sustainable future, just future, that it requires many of us or most of us to have those direct experiences with plant medicine, or is it the kind of thing where maybe just a few, a few of us, a smaller number of us needs that for the society to transform? Well, I think Aaron, that there's a, there's a consciousness revolution going on around the world. People are waking up uh, to the fact that we live on a tiny space station. Uh, with mm -hmm. no shuttles, we can't get off, and we've been navigating it toward disaster. We need to change. And I think <laughs> there's a conspiracy, if you will, of cooperation around the planet. The planet itself, with its earthquakes and its hurricanes, and is telling us that it wants to work with us to do this. And the plants are doing the same thing. So yes, we're having the what we call psychotropic plants, uh, ayahuasca, mush all these mushrooms and peyote and all these different plants that people are beginning to get this information from. It's just one of many things. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think, you know, I, I, yeah, I was trained as, a, as an ayahuasca shaman actually back in the 60s, back when, when I was in the Amazon. It's a great plant, but it's not, you know, everybody doesn't need to take it by any means. There's yeah. so many ways to wake up to what's going on in the world. All the plants, I think, are speaking to us. That's why organics and vegetarianism and veganism, all these things are arising. So that, it doesn't mean everybody has to become a vegan, but it does mean that there's a consciousness that's growing out of that. Uh, and I think the plants are speaking to us. I think the animals are speaking to us. We've got coyotes running and, 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 and tigers, <laughs> bobcats, whatever, running around streets. And you're in Colorado. I think you've had some experiences there with these vacant streets and some wild cats up there. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, you know, there's this Mother Earth. Pachamama, this living earth is, 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 is working with us, conspiring with us, corroborating with us, that's a better word probably, corroborating with us, cooperating with us, joining with us to let us know that we've got to re-navigate this space station, we've got to reboot the navigation system and the pilots need to, <laughs> need to change course, that's us, we're the pilots. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, 
It's so spot on. And, and yes, indeed, here, here in the Rocky Mountain region of, of Boulder, we've been seeing a lot more um, cougar sightings. Of course, cougar is a cousin of jaguar. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. Just the other day, I saw Big Mama Bear and her cub out uh, near our home. And uh, yep, there we go. So yeah. I want to I ask uh, one more question before, before we wrap up. And it's, it's, it's not meant to be uh, pointed, but I'll, I'll mention that, you know, when we named the book Why on Earth and launched the Why on Earth community, one of the meanings behind the name is it's referring to Gen Y, to the millennial generation, which my kids uh, loosely uh, fall into. And I'm struck that I, I'm, I'm assuming you're approximately a baby boomer. Um, and I remember when I was a teenager starting to awaken to this reality and seeing this massive consumer machine and then seeing my grandfather who lived through the depression as a teenager who was a prisoner of war in the Second World War in Germany and, and had some very harrowing uh, experiences that brought right front and center the, the fundamentals of, of surviving on this planet. And so throughout his entire life, he gardened avidly. He, he was a huge proponent of that. He walked a lot. He read a lot. And I remember speaking with him about this fairly early on and ha him essentially commenting that things were really getting off course. And this, you know, this was back in the 80s or 90s or something. Yeah. And I'm curious from your perspective as a boomer, uh, recalling this this thing you shared in the book toward the end that, that Howard Zinn said to you, he said, don't run from the guilt, we're all guilty. We have to admit that although the big corporations own the propaganda machines, we allow ourselves to be duped. You can set an example, show people that the way out, redemption comes from confronting and changing it, roll up your sleeves, take action. It's such a beautiful statement, and, and John, I'm really curious. You know, there are many of us who kind of get this, who are on, on this road to helping create this beautiful future in the near term, and I think there's also a whole bunch of us who aren't seeing that yet and aren't maybe convinced yet or aren't uh, letting go yet of some of these old, old paradigms and, and ways of thinking about life, and what do you say to that? How do you create more of an invitation and a gesture of, you know, we're all in this together to, to some of those folks out there. Well, Aaron, that's why I write books and why I'm on your show and, and why, you know, I've been traveling around up until recently <laughs> speaking at places is to get the word out there. And I don't pretend to believe that I'm going to convince everybody. We, we don't need to convince everybody. You know, there's a, I've seen a, a Howard Zinn, great historian, would, would tell you that at the time of the American Revolution, uh, roughly a third of the country were Tories. They, they thought we should stay with England. And a third of the country were what we'd call revolutionaries. And then a third of the country, the other third of the country didn't know what to think. They were someplace in between, they, they really didn't care. But uh, the, the third that, that, you know, that, that believed in the revolution, it may have been less than that actually, moved, moved forward. And, uh, you know, so my, my feeling is um, I just do everything I can to get the word out there. And I'll, I'll, I'll appear on right-wing shows if that's what it takes. I'll do whatever it takes to, to, to get my own viewpoint out there. I don't care if people attack me. <laughs> I have to defend myself. Um, so I think just continue to get the word out there, but also to recognize we don't need to convince everybody. I sometimes, I said to a person recently who said, I've got this uncle, uh, this is just before Thanksgiving, and uh, before we were in this state of isolation, I've got this uncle, I was going to be at the dinner table, and how am I going to convince him? He just can't convince him. And I said, well, don't try. <laughs> you know, don't fight with him. You might want to ask him some questions. You know, why, why do you believe this? And just listen. And, 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 and maybe he'll learn through asking himself questions. But don't, but don't, 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 don't try to, don't, you know, can't push a string. And there's plenty of, plenty of strings that we can pull. So that, that's probably, you know, as much as anything, what we need to do. And I just say that, that you know, in, in, the, in the book and, and in this upcoming workshop, I really ask people to look at, you know, who am I? What am I? What do I really want out of my life? We go through a whole practice of looking, what do I really want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction? What obstacles, jaguars, stand in my way? 
how do I touch these Jaguars? How do I change the perception that, that these Jaguars have given me and then let them give me a new perception? And then what actions do I take? And there's a whole process we each can go through on a fairly regular basis to, to, make, to do that. And when we do, we move into you know, where we really want to be and as, as individuals and as a society. But there are certain people that just are not going to go there. And at least not at the beginning, you know, there's that whole bell-shaped curve. You've got the, the leading edge people and then the followers and so, and then you're, and so on. And eventually they, they come around. So most of them come around. They don't all need to come around. Um, so, uh, you know, I take great hope in the fact that we are making, a, we have, even before the virus, we were making a lot of progress. And now I'm hearing so many people talk about how we must change. This virus is teaching us that. And, you know, what you're doing on this show is a huge step in that direction. It's great work, and thank you for doing it. Yeah, absolutely, John. And, and just to uh, reiterate and remind folks, you can join John Perkins on April 29th for a special live webinar when you pre-order uh, his forthcoming book, Touching the Jaguar, at johnperkins.org. And uh, it, it is such a pleasure uh, visiting with you, John. I know we we need to wrap up here in just a, a moment and uh, just want to thank you for your time, for all of your work, for your courage, uh, sharing what you've shared uh, with us over the years. And uh, before we sign off, I, I just want to invite you, if there's anything else you'd like to share with our audience, uh, that, that would be great. Well, thank you, Aaron. Uh, I think I've pretty much done it. I'd just like to say, I, I think it's really important that we all enjoy what, we, what we're moving into, feel blessed, blessed that we're at this time when we have the opportunity. Yes, there's crises and opportunities, and let's just take advantage of the opportunities uh, and, and move forward and, and, and do it from a place of great joy. Because if we don't enjoy what we're doing, yeah. um, we're not going to be successful at it. So feel Feel the joy, feel the ecstasy, move into your bliss. And you know, I like to write, but and you like to, and you get a great program. And if you're a carpenter, use sustainable materials and tell people they might be paying a little bit more for those sustainable materials, but they're investing in the future. It's not a cost, it's an investment for themselves and their kids and their grandkids. And whatever you do, you can tie in this idea of a life economy and you can do it with joy. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Well, great. Well, thank you so much, John. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much. Keep up your great work. Look forward to talking to you again. Let's do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. That sounds great. All right. All right. Bye-bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth. All one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.